I didn't invent it. Just two percent are undecided. <laughs> Mata rambling rose of the wild wood. All right, now can we have a, a little, uh, a little sneaky, sinister, deep-thinking, philosophical, dramatic music, if you will, please? Dramatic music, soft and philosophical. Let's hear it then. Oh, yes, that's very philosophical. Yes. I think uh, the advertisements of today are going much further than advertisements ever did go, friend. Much, much further. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I know one guy who uh, went and saw old Calcutta, you know, and he says, uh, that's ridiculous. He said he could have spent three hours in front of the boob tube on any given Saturday night. He'd seen more true SEX than he saw at old Calcutta. But that's uh, neither here nor there. They're also getting into some pretty deep stuff. I don't know whether you've seen this uh, series of billboys. I'd like you to turn your attention now to a little dramatic scene. Two typical guys are sitting in the office, see? One guy's got his lunch. He's eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And the other guy's just come up from chock full of nuts. And he's got a tuna salad sandwich. And some diet yoo Look at that. Two typical guys. And one says to the other, Say, uh, Clarence, you don't mind if I get uh, a little personal here, do you? Why no? Howard, it's perfectly all right. Uh, Clarence, uh, you know, I've been thinking about you the other day. In fact, I was talking to Howie, and I said, uh, Have you noticed Howard? Have you noticed that he... Seems to be so calm these days. I mean, not only that, you remember how nervous he used to be? He used to be uptight, used to knock the water cooler over. The time he threw uh, the computer down the air shaft, and uh, he was real nervous. And I, I, I just said, you know, I, if there's a big change come over you. What is it? Well, well, I'll tell you. I found something to believe in. You what? I have found an anchor upon which to base my life. That all men spend most of their lives searching, searching. Has that ever occurred to you, Clarence? Searching, searching, looking for something to, to hold on to. And I've found it. 
Oh, yeah? Yes, I have. I found it. I've tried everything. You remember last summer when I was a Zen Buddhist? <laughs> yeah, that was exciting. Yes, I was a Zen Buddhist. You remember last summer? I, well, after a while, you know, I got so sick and tired of rice, I just couldn't take that scene. I mean, I, it was rice, 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 day and night. And uh, all those scratchy robes. And sitting down there, I'll tell you, that I, I went into the lotus position twice, and I thought I'd bust my leg. And, I, you know, that was enough for me. I knew that that wasn't my thing. Well, I guess uh, you must have found it, though. I'm really impressed. I mean, i never seen you like this. You sit there quietly, and you look off to the distance all the time. Once in a while, you're home, and I've seen you writing poems the other days. You used to write them crummy memos. Now you write poems. What is it? Well, I tried everything, you know. I, You remember last winter, I went on the LSD kick? I figured I could believe in that. I got nothing but headaches. Every time I take the LSD, I get nothing but a headache and a sore throat. That's all I ever got, you know. It's, I don't care what Paul Krasner says about it. It didn't do it. Nothing to me, you know. Yeah, well... And then the hippie commune. Remember, me and Mabel went out to San Francisco, Haight-Asbury. We joined that commune. I sat around. Well, six weeks later, I got nothing but lice. I never could play the guitar. I can't stand the sound of a guitar. We sat around and did nothing. And, at the, you know, after a while, all them bugs and all that stuff, I just couldn't take it. Well, I, I don't blame you, you know. I seen you scratching when you come back. I didn't know. I, I, you know, I never thought them hippie communes. I thought they was kind of groovy, but I never thought about the... the you know, they never mentioned the bugs in, in Life magazine, all that stuff. And, uh... Yes. Oh, I found something, though. You remember Remember when I was a peacenik? You remember? I, I went into the peace thing for a while there. I really grabbed a hold of it. And, uh... Well, I'll tell you. I, you know what? You know what busted that for me, uh, Howard? You know what? The, what the broke that for me? Well, I'll tell you. We was marching up and down one day in front of the UN, and this this other peacenik he uh, swung his sign around and had uh, bumped me in the elbow. And I said, "Please don't bump me in the elbow." And the next thing you know, the guy hit me over the head on it, and there was seventeen of us peaceniks out there fist fighting. I got a busted nose. I, you know, I'm just not tough enough to be a peacenik. I, I you know, I can't hit people like they do. What, what was it? What was it you found? Well, I'll tell you. I tried it all. Christian science, a whole bit. Astrology. I went and sat cross-legged in front of Gene Dixon for two weeks. Nothing. I tried it all. I, you know, do you know that, that, that I was subscribing to the Village Voice three years before it was published? I'm a believer. But it's not done nothing for me. Nothing. Well, what, what do you do? Oh, listen, I went to everything the YMHA put on for the last nine years. And I just hear nothing but these little skinny guys saying poetry through their nose. And it's, you know, it's same stuff every week. Well, what, what is it? Tell me what it is. I'm looking myself. I mean, me and, me and Kate, we've been looking, looking for something. Looking, looking. I'm just driving me out of my point. The other day, we're sitting there. We're eating our spam the other day. And she says, look, Howard... We better get something to believe in, or we are not a family that's going to stick together. You know what they say? A family that prays together stays together. We ain't going to stay together. And I said, there, i got to find something. And now you found something. What is it? What is it? Oh, please, what is it? Easy, boy. Easy, boy. When a man has discovered something, he's discovered something. I'll tell you how it was. Oh, it's the day that changed my life. It was a moment of Satori. I'll never forget it. I'm riding along US-1 in that uh, rotten brand X car that I bought a couple of years back. You know, the one with the balsa wood transmission? 
the one with the stereo, the only one speaker that worked was nothing that gave me nothing but thumps. Never gave me the highs or nothing. Remember that car? Yeah, yeah, what's that going to do? Well, I'll tell you. I was driving along Route 1. You know, they wouldn't let me on the turnpike after the first year with that car. They just wouldn't let me through the thing. There was a menace to navigation. Well, inadvertently, that car led me to the truth. The truth. And I want you to sit down, Howard. I want you to look deep into your navel. I want you to say to yourself, where have I missed the great truths of our time? Sitting around watching the Mets. When you should have been believing in something. Who can believe in the Mets? They're winners. Next year they'll be losers. And then what? Where will you be when they're back down in seventh place, huh? For years I was a Yankee fan, right? Now look it. Yankee fan, huh? So Yankee of this town and you're getting hit in the face with a pie. Even Mike Burke is a Met fan, huh? All right. Everything I believed in crumbled before me. Do you know I own three guitars? I have nothing but blisters all over my hand. I could never play nothing. And uh, I kept trying to play Blowing in the Wind, and it kept coming out like my body lies over the ocean. The only thing I could play, try singing that at the bitter end, see if you get anywhere with it. Well, I'll tell you. I'm driving along Route 1 the other day. You never know when you're going to see something that's going to bring the truth to you, Howard. I'm driving along Route 1, and that crummy, that monster, that thing with the silly putty kingpins, it's banging along and shaking, and I see a signboard coming out over the hill. It came up over the shell station. I looked at it, and first, I don't read signboards, you know. Uh, ever since I saw the one that says, uh, vote for Rocky, and I voted, and look now. I, I'm driving along, and there's this big sign, and it says, at last... Something to believe in. Something went off in my head. Something to believe in. I have been looking for something to believe in all my life. And there, under the slogan, Something to Believe In, it was a clarion call to truth. It said, Your new Buick. Well... Howie, right then and there, I went down to my Buick dealer. And I bought a new Buick. And my God, Howard, my life has changed. Changed. I have something I can believe in now, Howard. I mean, I forget the Pope. Forget Ho Chi Minh. Forget Mao. Forget Karl Marx Schopenhauer. Forget Euripides. Forget Plato. Forget Mary Baker Eddy. Forget Gene Dixon. Forget John Neville. All of the greats. Forget them. Forget Gil Hodges. Even that. I believe in my Skylark. And we're happy. And every night, the little woman and I go and sit in the front seat and meditate. We just run our hands over the dashboard. And those little lights on the gas gauge glint and glimmer the truth and then we go out and we just just feel our we run our hands over the beautiful smooth silken velvet truth of the wood <laughs> things are different now I think our marriage will, will last now I bought a Skylark and I picked up a special for her and together the two of us we pray together every Sunday in front of the Shell Station. 
This little drama was brought to you by the U.S. Council of Better Things to Believe in, Incorporated, a tax-free foundation. Why do they put all that stuff on my show? Why can't they put these tax-free things on John Gambling's show in the morning? Instead of all them Shinola spots, huh? Crying out loud. Geez, that wasn't that touching? It really was. You know, I think that, you know, we all need something to believe in. I think that was good advice, as Mel Allen would say. Good advice. <sighs> I'll try a Jack, uh, a Jackie Gleason on you. See, I hold this thing up and say, ah, oh, nothing like tab. Oh, a little diet-free tab. Oh, wow. Oh, yes. Well, of course, there's the 7-Up sect. That's a, that's a cult. But I hate cultists. And uh, it's, it's kind of nice to know that all 12 of our listeners are out there tonight. We just got a report from the ARB people. And I can't even tell you what ARB stands for because there are kids listening. And uh, I can't tell you. No, no, no. Radio hasn't grown up yet. Nope. You'll have to think it out yourself. And I got a note from the ARB people. They said they're all listening tonight. All 12. I mean, I like the way that guy said that he, he became a Zen Buddhist, that he couldn't stand rice. After a while, it was rice coming out of his ears. Did you hear him say that? And he says he had to assume the, the lotus position, and his knees kept cracking. It was embarrassing him in the temple there. Sit down, you know. <laughs> that was kind of sad. Uh, and, you know, the, I thought it was really touching the way he you know, tried LSD, expanding his consciousness. All he got was a split and, you know... Ache in the bean, that's all. He got a fantastic headache and he had a gut ache, threw up all over 6th Avenue one night. Well, of course, you expand your consciousness a lot of ways, friends. Little lemon, kind of nice. They ate a little vermouth, too. That uh, has a little pizzazzer. Oh, well, speaking of pizzazzers, will you please, uh, please, if you will. All right, wine, wine, spy, dry, hit it. Come on, big. Jump, choo, choo, choo. Hooray, it's all beginning to happen. It's happening at Fairly Dickinson, Fairly Dickinson University. Oh, Theta Beta Sigma Chi. Oh, the Ruth Fern Biological Society of Fairly Dickinson U. Why did they make me do this? This is insane. I'm a, I'm a grown-up man. I've won prizes. What am I doing here? Theta Beta Sigma, the Ruth Fern Biological Society of Fairly Dickinson University presents. I won't say it. Da, da. Joe Franklin tonight on the xylophone. Doing his famous tap dance in his soft shoe shuffle. He'll play your favorite tunes. He'll sing your favorite old melodies. And he'll talk about the good old days. Barry Farber will be on the alto sax. His famous singing alto sax. And bouncing Peter Roberts, of course, will play his singing violin. The Rutherford Biological Society of Fairly Dickinson University. Ah, this is sick. I won't, I won't. I stop it. I can't do that anymore. It's just silly. Silly. S-I-L-Y. Silly. We'll not do that anymore. I don't look embarrassedly. It's all right. <laughs> I thought that was kind of cute, actually. I get about 7,000 underground papers, you know, mailed to me. All the time, because they recognize anybody that's on WOR after Joe Franklin is underground, and uh, and uh, you know, <laughs> well, you are. This is a special kind of underground, it really is. 
I mean, you know, you know, when you find yourself down here, you know, among all the bird whistles and and the, oh, sure, I get that. You know what? The, the old stations that I used to work on are pursuing me. You know, I'm down a dial. Do you know the two old stations that I used to work for interfere with the station now that I'm on? Yeah, and they're doing it just, to, you know, out of meanness, that's all. I used to work on the Cincinnati station. They keep jiggling the crystal out there in Cincinnati. They're on 700. See, we're on 710. And, of course, we got a crystal that has a met. I mean, WR here. We wander up and down the dial. You know, some nights we're down around 1520, and uh, then we wander all the way up to 540. One time we were way up with the ship frequencies. In fact, one time WR is up in the Loran frequencies, you know, for a while there. We drift back and forth. And, uh, <laughs> well, nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's a, it, it, that's a proletarian revolution. I think, uh, you know, we're being bombed by silly, idiotic, old-fashioned ideologies like crystals in the final of your transmitter. That kind of jazz. But uh, nevertheless, uh, we would like to salute this underground newspaper. And uh, they don't always say what you expect them to say. Now, uh, if you please give me a little stars and stripes there, uh, please, uh, just to get out of the pile there. And uh, while they're doing that, you don't mind if I... Uh, oh, no, that's terrible. I got a note here. Hey, listen, you, you wonder why I'm, I'm, I'm in such a great, fantastic mood tonight? Are you all wondering? Well, it's because I, and I'm going to have to apologize to all the Met fans out there. I happen to be a Met fan. I was a Met fan, believe me. I'll never forget one day, I was out at Chase, the, no, it was uh, the Polo Grounds. I was out at the Polo Grounds the day that Ed Cranepool played his first game. And, uh, yeah, I was sitting, it was way at the end of the season. It was really cold. In fact, there were icicles hanging off of Casey Stengel's jowls. It was a real bad day. And uh, the Mets had just uh, lost their 117th game. And it uh, looked like they were almost going to win a game, see? And you know who they were playing? Another team that was so far down the cellar, it was unbelievable. These two teams were battling it out for the uh, for the title as to who was going to lose the last game of the season, see? And, that's right. And and, and, and uh, if any of you if any of you are curious, uh, I can even tell you who pitched that game. Uh, the, the two of them were out there, these two teams, uh, complete studies in futility. It was the Chicago Cubs. Now, if you think that the, you know, everybody thinks the Mets were, were you know, a joke, but you know that the Cubs have not won a pennant since, uh, well, since the end of World War II. I think, I think they won a pennant. 46? Well, that's the end of World War II. I was right. They won a pennant about five minutes after they dropped the atom bomb. Everybody was still walking around stunned, you know, and the, and the Cubs got in. Yeah, everything, you know, they won. And so they haven't won another one. That's been, oh, three, four hundred years ago. And so I went out to see the, the Cubs and the Mets play the last game of the season. And uh, the announcer out there at the, uh, out the stadium, see, he's on the, on the PA system, and they got all these dill docks coming in for the Mets. Of course, they were bringing up everybody. Oh, yeah. Did you know that one game Casey Stengel's wife played second base for three innings? They just couldn't dig up anybody. You know, and I was, it was such a bad game that I was expecting somebody to come up through the, you know, the crowd. So anybody here uh, know how to play shortstop? Anybody here like to try, uh, how about third base? Hey, you, you look like a third baseman. The fat guy, come on, put down a beer. How about going out? Here's a glove, you know. I was hoping, you know, this is a, all men that go through this phase, you know, when you, you hope that one day you're going to be sitting out there, see, and uh, some guy's going to come sliding in a second, break his leg, and they're going to put in another guy, and he goes sliding in the third and breaks his leg. And as he did, he busts three ribs on the shortstop's neck, you know, and then he slides in, and the catcher's hurt, and all of a sudden there's no ball players. With that, Gil Hodges comes out with a white towel. He waves a towel. He walks out in front of the stand and says, Ladies and gentlemen, we have received permission from the league to ask for volunteers. We have six players left, and we need a minimum of nine to play the game. Uh, who would like to volunteer? We have received permission from the 
and and the, and it doesn't make it. No, no money. Who cares about money? Get out of there. You let me tell you this. You get out in the major league ballpark, you forget money. Doggone quick. Uh, and so he says, uh, "Who wants to volunteer?" This is the secret desire of every male. Yeah. And then they spot him. See, he, he says, oh, no, no. And the chickies was, go ahead, go ahead, Charlie. You were great at the fat man, skinny man softball game last week out of the park. You were terrific. Go ahead, tell him. Go on, tell him. You really hit one. It was straight up in the air. I never saw anybody hit a ball straight up in the air like that. I mean, go, go on, tell him. Go on. Oh, no, 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 no. With that, all of a sudden, Gil Hodge spots you. Ah, uh, hey. Well, a tall, skinny guy with pimples sitting up there, uh... Would he please step down here, and uh, we'd love to have your shortstop, please. We need you very bad. You get up, and you walk down the stairs into the dugout, and everybody's cheering. And, of course, they don't have a uniform, see. You don't have, so you have to roll your pants up. And uh, and you're out there, and they give you this glove. It's an old, and it, you know, it's some old glove that Elston Howard had last year. See, so now, now you've got your glove, and you're out there, and you're shortstop. The dreams of glory, then. Then what is the next dream, of course? Okay, uh, let's say uh, uh, <laughs> Willie Stargell is up, right? <laughs> oh, boy, Willie Stargell is up. And Willie Stargell, uh, Willie Stargell has made Shea Stadium his own private playground. Willie Stargell, you know, hit the first home run ever hit in Shea Stadium, and he has not stopped since. So Willie is out there, see, and he's a real mean-looking guy. So Willie Stargell, he whips the bat around. You hear that bat whipping. He's just whipping, see, practice. You feel the breeze all around at short you're out there, seeing you got your quarter and knickers rolled up, you know, over your knees, and you and you holler, all right, come on, let him hit it. Hey, hey, let him hit it. This is what you always say, you know, when you play the fat guys, play the skinny guys. And so you start hitting your glove. Hey, let him hit it. Hell. And with that, the third baseman, see, uh, Ed Charles, hey, cut it out, that's Bush. You don't holler that, let him hit it. You don't say it. You don't holler anything they can understand, man. All you say is, hey, ooh, ooh, ooh. That's all you holler. And you, ooh, 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 ooh. See, inarticulate croaks of, of, uh, of angry athleticism. <laughs> You're walking around, and Stargell sees you out there. He sees this guy with the knickers. It's a whap. He smashes that ball. There it is. It's drilling out there toward shortstop. And there goes, uh, oh, what's his name? The skinny guy from back at third base. He runs. He slides. What a stop. Fantastic stop. Oh, my God, what a stop. He throws from the knee. What an arm. And he gets him by an eyelash at first. What a play. It's the greatest play we've seen yet this year. Holy smokes. What's that man's name? The one with the corduroy knickers. Uh, Oh, now you get up. What a moment, see. And, of course, next inning, you're at bat. And, uh, and the pitcher happens to be, let's see, Willie Stargell. Who would be pitching for Willie Stargell's ball club? All right, Bob Veal. Yeah, Bob Veal. See, he's another mean mother. And so here's Bob Veal walking around. You see, he kicks the third. He spits. And he spits so hard that it hits the, it hits the pitcher's mouth, and you get some on your shoe. And here you are, standing way over by home plate, see, and the catcher's getting in the eye, and he's walking around. Yeah, all right. And you see the catcher down there. I don't know who the Pittsburgh catcher is. Who's the Pittsburgh catcher here? And they got some. Uh, Pittsburgh? No, they never have a good catcher. Anyway, there's a pitcher. They don't have one? Well, they don't need one with Bob Veal pitching. So so uh, the Pittsburgh catcher, no, they don't <laughs> with their pitching staff. No, they just need a lot of outfielders. So uh, anyway, uh, Bob Veal looks down and see the catcher's giving the sign. And he starts to talk about, oh, man, all right, let's go, let's go, lay it in, right, let's go, let's lay it in, pow, let's go, pow, baby, let's go, pow, shoo, pow. And you feel this thing, see, you just sense that the ball went past you, whap. And you see the, 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 the fantastic recoil of the catcher. The ball hits the catcher's mitt, and the catcher moves back seven inches, just slides him back, you know, like a gas-operated weeping. 
All right. All right, let's go, Bobby Boy. You got this guy. You got this guy. You can't hit that ball. Let's go. Let's go. This guy's nothing, nothing. Let him hit a little. And then you, you're up there at plates. You're digging in, see, with your quarter and nickel set drooping down around your ankle. See, you're digging in. Now, it's a wind-up. You see the pitch, and you see that sudden flash of white. Your eyes close. You swing. You feel a jar all the way through your gut. And then you hear the crowd. <sighs> and there's a stunned silence. 724 feet. It landed in the parking lot where Robert Moses had that little private World's Fair that he had. You remember that? 724 feet breaking the world's home run tape distance record. And you trot around. Of course, ironically, you fall over second base as you trot around in your home run. And these are dreams of glory. These are all male dreams of glory. They're not chick dreams of glory. Instantly, I will worry. I will tell you this. I'm, I, 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 tomorrow, the next day, I will receive 1,922 letters from ladies saying, Your program the other night bored me. And uh, in spite of that, I stuck with you. It's so terrible talking about baseball. And, you know, women are that way. So, uh, I mean, you know, it's 50-50, split down the middle. You lose some, you win some. And, uh, you know, tomorrow night's doily night, lady, Okay. Tomorrow night, I'll tell about my Aunt Min making a doily. Yeah. And uh, remember the guy at the polo game. What guy? <laughs> there were several guys came out. Oh, the guy at the polo? Well, I, I actually saw this. Let me tell you what happened. No, she's right. I saw this fantastic moment of, of, of dreams come true one time. Now, uh, before I tell you this, I have, to, I have to explain something very deeply uh, personal and very emotional to me. The reason that I am so skittish tonight is that I am wearing the absolute end piece of clothing that I own. Absolute the end. And I have to I have to uh, apologize to all you Met fans out there. I happen to be a Met fan, but I'm apologizing to you. I am a let's put it this way, I am a um, an intellectual Met fan. I dig the Mets. Okay? But deep down inside my gut down there where those little dark skulking figures of my psyche lurk at night and go fishing for catfish just next to my pancreas there, way down deep. You never, you never stop believing in the gods of your youth. You don't. Nothing to do with, no. It has nothing to do with, uh, with nostalgia. Listen to me carefully. There are a lot of kids right now out there tonight listening Right this minute, who are ten years old, listening to the show. Yes, there are. I know these. They're out there. And I want to tell you about it. I'll bet out of those, let's say, a hundred of them. Now, I'm not speaking for women. I'm speaking for boy types, because that's the only thing I was, you know? And a lot of women who... Now, immediately, I'm going to get 700 letters from people saying, What do you mean? Boys and girls are the same. Why, I was a girl... No. Any man can tell you, no man would ever say boys and girls are the same. Only women say that. <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, no. No, I'm not even talking about the biological things. I'm talking about attitude. So I get this, I, you know, uh, <laughs> I say that there's probably 28 million 10-year-old kids listening out there, most of whom have seen a girl within the last two years you know, you, you start getting really interested in girls when you're about eight. Really? Yes, you do. Oh, you have a you have a different interest before that. You're fascinated. 
Five, oh no, I know all that, that uh, stuff you read in the psych books. It's not what I'm discussing. I'm talking about real life. Well, you were precocious. That's your problem. But uh, I, well, no, I mean, I, I agree that that that, uh, that you're fascinated at five. But I'm talking about you really, you really feel these deep pangs of total love. See, uh, you see this chick across the street, and she's got this hair that's cut like a football helmet, you know, and uh, and yeah, you know, and you, you and, and her name, she's uh, they always have some, you know, some name like Esther Jane or, or something like that, Joanne or something. So you you, you uh, these kids. You, you do. You, you go out of your bird. You see, for a while, you walk, you walk around, you bump into the end table and all that stuff, and uh, you keep peeking across the street, and you keep walking around in front of the house and all that stuff. Well, now, probably in the next two years, or even less, probably in the next 20 minutes, any of you guys that are listening, this girl, you will no longer be involved with this girl, you, if you ever were at all. But it's already set. From that day on, you will be secretly in love with girls who all look like this girl, even if you don't remember her. Do you know that they found out that the that when you take a guy, he'll he'll look at he'll let's take he, he let's take, let's say he takes a, a magazine where there's a lot of ads in it, and uh, there's a lot of women, uh, a lot of models, you see, and there's maybe uh, five hundred of them in this magazine. He will pick one girl. Say, oh man, what a great looking chick. Now, he can't tell you why he thinks she's a great-looking chick, except he thinks she is. Now, the next guy said, oh, come on, look at this one here, man. This is this is the real Bippy, see? And he's pointed his tall, skinny one that looks like a hatchet, you know, come on, head on. And you can't figure what he sees in this girl. Well, ultimately, nobody can tell why they think a girl is great-looking. There is a, is a very strong school of thought that says, and I'm talking about a serious psychological school of thought that says that it goes back to the first stirrings of interest outside of the family. Nothing to do with your mother or your sister or anything else. There was this girl <laughs> who was two rows over in second grade. And I and, and it's hard to remember her even. So you say, oh no, that did not happen to me. Well, I submit to you that you probably don't remember it at all. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. That it's way down, down there in the bottom of everything. See, now she could have done a lot of things to make this happen. She beat you the spelling contest. You know, she could spell scissors, and you were having lucky. You know, having trouble spelling the and it, and, uh, <laughs> and you were overcome by total, complete. You know, you're completely gassed in your your uh, uh, your admiration for this chick. You know that kind. She says. Yesterday, Y E S T E R D A Y. You keep saying Y E S Y E S E T. No, Y E S T. Well, all right now. The only point that I'm getting at here is that you can you can grow up, you see, and become a lot of things, but deep down inside it is a bell that rings. For example, every time I take the sport page, even though the first thing I do is look at the Mets score, see, and after that I look to see whether Bobby Mercer did anything today. And then, way down at the bottom, it says, White Sox, drop pair. Well, now, I'm sorry, I grew up a White Sox fan. I'm sorry. Now, there's a lot of kooky, I mean, there's a lot of completely dedicated Met fans, kids right now out there in the darkness with their banners and signs and all that. Well, what are those kids going to do when they get to be, say, uh, 26? They've got their M.A. from Rutgers, the biggest high school in the Western world. They get their M.A. in the philological studies, and now they're shipped to 
to, to uh, work in some office in San Diego. Do you think that they will ever outgrow being a Met fan? I doubt it. Now, they may become attached because they go to the ball games to the San Diego Padres, which is hard to believe, but they do, see. <laughs> Especially if the Padres suddenly find themselves in a fantastic pennant race. They'll be sucked into it. But always there will be a little thing, a little bell will ring when the word Met is said. They will remember Ed Cranepool crawling back to first base. I did. I saw him in his first game. I'll never forget the scene. Cranepool somehow got around to third base. This was the first game he ever played. And he overran third. He completely overran it. And he's, he's down on the ground, and he's crawling on his hands and knees back to third base. Well, the third baseman of the Chicago Cubs, who was Ron Santo even then, but he just sort of laughed. He saw Cranepool crawling towards him, see? And Santos got the ball. He just waited for Cranepool to crawl right up to him. He tagged him right on the top of the head. <laughs> Cranepool looked up. <laughs> that was the Mets. Well, uh, you know who was pitching for the Mets? He won his first game of the year that day. It was on the last day of the season. Who was it? The first game he won that year. Well, I'll give you a clue. His last name began with an M. And he was hardly known on the Mets. Miller. Righty Bob Miller, who was later sold. And Whitey out there was winning, and I was sitting, I didn't know it, I was sitting next to his wife, and she was crying all through the last three innings because he was winning his first ball game. Uh, Mets three, St. Louis two, Mets win. How about that, man? That means one more ball game tomorrow night. Oh, boy. And then it's Frank Robinson. <laughs> and then it's reality. They won't be playing the Astros. Well, <laughs> they'll be playing the big boys. However, uh, uh, I am now in the middle of a, of a very, uh, this is very dramatic for me. Last spring, a little thing happened to me. I was approached by an agency, and they said, uh, uh, you uh, have done some money, funny things about the Chicago White Sox. We would like you to do all the Chicago White Sox commercials to be played all over the Midwest on TV and radio. I said, groovy, great. So uh, I started to do them, and he says, what do you want to do these? How much dough do you want, Mac, before you make these? I said, well, I want a lot of dough. That's right. How much is a ball club worth? And he says, well, oh, you'd want more than that. I said, <laughs> I says, well, okay. And so well, I made these commercials. Now, maybe any of you who are traveling out in the Midwest, you might have heard them. They were all over. They're all over radio and TV out there, these White Sox. Very funny commercials. They won a couple of prizes. But then I said to him this. I said, man, look. I got you over a barrel. You want me to do these commercials, right? The White Sox requested it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's how the cookie crumbles, man. Yeah. We run up the flagpole and see whether it whistles Dixie, right? I says, that's right, Bill. Now, I want to tell you, Billy boy, if you want old Shep to do those commercials, you are going to have to get me a Chicago White Sox game team official warm-up jacket. And he got, you know, he, he got real nervous. You could see he was, he blenched. Like they always do in novels. He blenched. He started visibly. He said, but, 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 I, I, I mean, I, I just work for the agency. I'd have to get that from the club. I said, that's right. Right from the club. I want Louis Aparicio's jacket. He said, well, boy, are you ever, boy, wait till Afra hears about this. You taking jackets for pay. Wait till I hear about this. Wait till, you know. And today I got my Chicago White Sox jacket. I am wearing it right this minute. It's a socks all over it. Poor old Stan Lomax, you know, he's very nearsighted. He thought it said sex. 
he got all excited. He thought it was a new club, you know, down on the 23rd floor. So, uh, I'm sorry, Stan. That's the way the cookie crumbles. It's, uh, you know, just a bad O that Sox had. But uh, it's his over-owner, you know. And so I got this beautiful jacket. And I may just wear it to Fairleigh Dickinson this coming Friday. Would you like to see me in my jacket out there? Do you think I should wear this out there? I a great big fantastic ovation in my beautiful jacket. That's right. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll allow you to come up on a stage and fight and yell and scream, all you Met fans. Huh? But it's a true Chicago White Sox jacket. The worst ball club in the American League. And I got a jacket from it. So you can see why I'm excited. A true loser jacket. You notice the elbows are worn? You notice that? Sure. White Sox used their jacket nine years running. This jacket was owned by Red Faber, who pitched for them in the late 1920s. So uh, take a deep breath and try to, you know, think a clean thought. Just try. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs>